So Ellie, thank you again for being here today with us. We're so excited to have you. How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. The topic when you sent it over is one of my favorites to chat about. So I'm looking forward to exploring it with you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're so excited too. Uh, now, Dr. Ferrari and I know a bit about your life, your meditation journey, your mindfulness research, but for folks at home who might not know it as much, could you please tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. And I always wonder where I should start. Um, <laughs> as you know, I went to my first uh, retreat with Zen Master Scholar and Nobel Peace Prize nominee Thich Nhat Hanh when I was 10 years old. So it's sort of funny in a professional interview, I'm like, well, let me start with my childhood. <laughs> um, but that experience of uh, being on retreat, um, I went with my parents. Uh, my dad is a retired physician and my mom uh, worked as a theater educator and arts educator in schools. And both of them integrated mindfulness into their work. And so we went as a family um, and I, so I grew up kind of thinking about what it looked like to bring mindfulness uh, into my own life, into educational spaces through my mom's work, into healthcare spaces. Um, and so, you know, when you're 15 and you come home from a retreat, people are like, what were you doing? And you have to decide what to tell them. In my case, I realized I didn't have to say to someone, hello, I am mindfully listening to you uh, to have this kind of practice like inform how I was living. Um, so on a personal side, I kind of grew up exploring it. Um, but I love learning. I love education. And so I went on to do a master's um, focused on bringing mindfulness into education. And that's something we might chat a bit more about. And then delighted, I just finished my PhD. Um, and that was in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, uh, looking at integrating mindfulness into healthcare spaces, specifically researching um, the impact of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings on physicians. And I did a study with 48 physicians across different specialties. Um, like a, qualitative study. I'm a qualitative researcher. And so all that is to say, I like to nerd out uh, on the practice side um, from my own lived experience, but then also kind of dive into research. And what really struck me when, when you all emailed me was I'm really interested in um, not just kind of the individual benefits, but looking at how we create, you know, occupational spaces or even societal spaces where people can flourish and thrive. And really in my dissertation, you know, looking at how can we assess this um, from a space of maybe well-being and flourishment, which are kind of asset-based versus, you know, we need to address burnout and, and these things, which is really important. And I, you know, research burnout also, but what does it mean to, to create spaces where people can thrive is such an interesting, uh, broad research question to me, you know, across so many sectors. That's incredible. And we definitely love to nerd out here as well. So we're so happy to have you. And just a bit more about, you know, your childhood, like I can definitely see why you wanted to work with physicians, you know, given um, that's what your dad also did. Um, so it sounds like such a creative space to have grown up with, especially with your mum as well. But so at such a young age, um, I was just curious to know what drew you to mindfulness training uh, more was it something personal as well yeah and it's, a, it's I think it's also an interesting question when we start to think about bringing some of these you know different wisdom traditions you know I have this particular lens through the training I've had but bringing those into educational spaces you know what might motivate a young person or really anyone to want to engage with these um and I can share more personally in a moment, but you made me remember uh, one of the classrooms I was in actually in Toronto, I was in a, a grade one class and I had been asked to offer a, a mindfulness session. I've, I've done this work, you know, in elementary and high school, post-secondary with adults and you know, trainings across all different spaces. Um, and for me, I always think, you know, the same thing we need really at any time, maybe to be invited, to be interested in engaging in maybe our own self-care or, or looking into ourselves. We need some, what we, everyone likes to call buy-in, right? How do we get buy-in? Um, and, you know, there's different ways to pitch buy-in in different spaces, but I'll share what I did with the grade ones, because that's what your question made me think of. And I think it's very transferable, actually, to everyone of all ages. I came in and instead of saying, you know, close your eyes, we're going to meditate, which is often what people imagine when we talk about, you know, mindfulness practice. I asked them what was challenging them, what was going on in their lives that was challenging for them. And they shared that a lot of people were kicking each other on the carpet. It was really distracting. And we had this like amazing conversation where all of them shared maybe for the first time recently, 
like how hard that was making their lives. And for me, this is already this act of, of self-awareness of mindfulness, right? We were bringing awareness to their challenges. If we look at, you know, traditional mindfulness, we say suffering is one of our noble truths. So we're looking at their suffering. That suffering was kicking each other, you know, on the carpet. Um, and so then I asked them, I said, well, I've been asked to come into your classroom to help explore with you ways that we can care for ourselves and, and care for each other. Would you like to do that? Yeah. So we had this buy-in, right? We had all agreed on what suffering was there, kicking each other on the carpet. So we were all interested in exploring that. And I think, you know, when I think about my work with adults, that's often the same thing. You know, you go into a, a major organization or you're working with physicians, you know, we want to ask that question, like, what are the challenges we're facing? And when we can be honest about that, it's almost like that first act of mindfulness. Um, and then we can explore modalities to take care of it. And we can get into all those around the evidence for like focused attention. Why does a breathing practice help you not kick each other? And we can get into that. Um, but your question made me think of this because when I think about why was I interested as a young person, I think um, for me, what I really liked about those retreats, the kind of Plum Village tradition is what Thich Nhat Hanh's community is called, is they really look at what we call like engaged or applied mindfulness. So not just sitting with our eyes closed on a cushion, which is great. The research shows that can change the structure and function of your brain. So happy to nerd out, nerd out on the neurobiological stuff. Um, but in addition to that, Thich Nhat Hanh and his community have always been interested in like engaging. So how do you take it off the cushion? How do you, you know, reflect on your life? How do you bring it into like mindful listening, mindful speaking? And so I just, I really remember as a young person, like being invited by a whole group of people at a retreat to say like, what are you experiencing? And like, that's not good or bad or right or wrong. It's like really welcome. And we're going to look at it together and we're going to look at ways to like care for each other and explore it. And something about that um, invitation and that kind of maybe we call it like the ontology and epistemology of, of Buddhism or mindfulness. It just always really spoke to me. I see. And I can see that like what you experiencing, what you challenging, uh, what, what is challenging you really tie in with your like initial point about like not being like, hey, hello, I am going to speak to you mindfully now. You know, like it, as you said, it's a lot more engaging. It's a lot more human and relatable. Um, so I definitely prefer that approach as well. I'm sure. I'm sure everyone else does as well. Um, but just to, just a little tricky question, maybe. How do you think your life would have panned out if you hadn't gone uh, with your early mindfulness training? That's a such an interesting question. I was actually thinking recently, you know, as as someone who who loves learning and researching and you know doing academic things, I also see in myself with, through my you know mindful awareness practice. You know, I really have these, these, we would call them habit energies of perfectionism, you know, urgency, getting everything right. Um, and some of that serves me very well in, uh, in getting through, you know, my academic goals and aims. Um, but also I see, and I think this is an interesting, you know, part of practice and how we think about flourishing, um, that without awareness of those, those tendencies in myself, um, you know, they come from my education, my culture, you know, some of my own personal inclinations, um, you know, that I could, you know, cause myself some harm in terms of how I push myself, how I judge myself, and also that cascades to the people around me. So I sometimes think, oh, if I didn't have this practice, like, who would I be? <laughs> and like, how, how difficult might I be to be around, you know, for myself and for the people I love? And so I think it's a great question. I think, um, you know, as we think about bringing this work out into the world, I've always liked to say, how am I researching mindfulness with mindfulness? And part of my practice as I went through my PhD and in life is to say, you know, I don't just want to be doing this work separate from myself, but it's something that I try and apply uh, to who I am. And I think it helps me to kind of navigate life in a way that is kinder and more engaged. Um, so when you say, who might I be otherwise? I think, oh dear, I think I would be a pretty difficult person actually. <laughs> One thing that I was curious about when I read about different, you know, research studies that people have been in schools, it seems like children are very different. Like even yourself at age 10, yourself now, it seems like the way you encounter the practice of what's needed for you might be different, you know. It seems like children are maximally open, but at the same time, their concentration, their attention might be drawn very quickly to other things. And so I don't know if, uh, what your experience was of that especially as it might apply to how you'd want to bring this into the schools? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And, and sometimes even I'm asked the question, like, 
can young children like even practice mindfulness? Cause you know, we wonder like, you know, can they even focus attention? And something I sometimes think is I feel like the, uh, the kind of thing we need to do an awareness practice, a self-awareness practice of some kind or a compassion practice is to be human, right? To, to have emotions and challenges and to have the capacity for happiness and joy is kind of the, the basic criteria. Um, and so in that way, we can see that, you know, even, you know, those, those students in grade one up to, you know, any age maybe have that foundation. But to your point that we then want to be aware or mindful of how are we translating um, and inviting in the practice, because certainly it looks, you know, very different. Um, and even in adult populations, I, I do some work uh, with the Marze program, which is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy adapted for adolescents um, through SickKids Hospital. And so sometimes I'm working with, you know, teens with chronic pain or, you know, teens who are going through depression. And so for, I think, so many populations, I think having what we might call like a settings approach, really meeting people where they are is, is so important and allowing it to be, you know, adaptable and flexible. Um, so often, I, you know, when I work with the younger students, uh, when we do sitting meditation, I I was playing around. We often do something we call sitting like a mountain versus sitting like jello because, you know, doing a, you know, 20 minute guided silent practice, you know, with a 10 year old, just in my experience, uh, is not, you know, super uh, relatable for them in that moment. They're all over the place. Um, but we can talk about, you know, sitting like a mountain. What are the qualities of mountain? We talk about what the qualities of jello are. And then we literally will sit there and be like, okay, mountain. And everyone sits with those qualities of like solid and stable. And then we go jello and everyone goes wiggle, 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 you know? And, but then after you can ask the question, like, what did you notice in your mind and body? And even very young students can say like, well, when I'm jello, I'm all over the place. And it's real. I don't know the thing about everything. And when I'm a mountain, like I'm really still. And you can ask like, how does that feel? And over time, you know, you can start doing the mountain part for longer and the jello part for shorter. And I'm always... I don't know if the word amaze is right, because like if we respect any human of any age as like having these capacities to be a human, uh, but just the the deep like insights that are shared, you know, with all these age groups of like when I sit like a mountain, like I, you know, one of the students I think was in a grade two class shared that when they had been practicing sitting like a mountain, they were kinder to their siblings later that day. And so these interesting connections, you know, when we look at the research that says like, having some stillness in our mind and body when we are often rushing gives us, you know, more solidity, more focus, focus attention has been shown, right? That basic practice to increase, you know, calm and stability. And what does that mean? And where does it cascade out to? Um, so especially when we bring this into schools, you know, for students, for teachers to have those moments where we aren't just inundated with our worries and projects and fears that we're training a skill set to be able to kind of give ourselves the gift of a mental break, you know, can show up as being kinder to their sibling. You know, I, we, I've had students when we did these workshops in, uh, in India, in schools there, we were with the teachers over the weekend and they came in on Monday morning and one of my co-facilitators asked the students if they'd noticed a difference in their teachers that morning. And the teachers looked a little nervous. <laughs> and uh, one, of the, one of the students, I think maybe in grade four, uh, shared like, yeah, this morning my teacher smiled to me and asked me why I was late. And I'm late almost every Monday because my, my sister has swim class and my mom drops me off late and she usually yells at me every Monday. And today she smiled and asked me why I was late and I'm having a better day. Um, and so, you know, just these, these small ways that the teacher over the weekend had had some time to care for themselves. And so on Monday morning, they looked at their student and asked them a different question. And so these very interesting connections between like doing this thing over here, say on your weekend where you follow your breathing quietly for five minutes. Like why do we see all this evidence saying that creates spaces where people have more well-being? And I think, you know, these stories are, are some of the ways we do that. I'm sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent from your question, but um, that's what that kind of reminded me of is like, how do we bring this in how do we, you know, build connection and buy-in? And I think these are kind of some of the ways that I've seen it in different spaces. No, thank you. We absolutely love tangents. So <laughs> please feel free to have as many as you'd like. And just to add on to Michelle's question, I guess this uh, beginner's mind attitude uh, to mindfulness, um, is it something that you notice more in your younger uh, students? So did age play a role at all in this sort of attitude or is it something that can 
really happen no matter how old you are. Yeah, that's a great. And thank you for linking me back to that part of the earlier question too, which is like, you know, who is open to this? What does it look like? And it's it's interesting. I think also it has a bit to do with our, you know, occupational setting, which brings us, you know, closer to that definition of burnout. Like the ICD-11 has actually officially, you know, said that burnout is a syndrome of occupational spaces. Um, and when I think of that, and I think of both your questions, right, like what are maybe some barriers or facilitators to being able to bring this in? Who's open and in what ways? Um, in different spaces I've been in, or even different cultural contexts, there's a very different kind of openness uh, to this. You know, I found that most spaces, um, as, if we know how to have buy-in, so we know how to like invite in looking in a, in a safe and open way, that often that, that opens up. Um, but certainly like when we're in education or healthcare, I think for you know, physicians or healthcare practitioners, clinicians in general, and, and for educators, for teachers, maybe those who are caring for the space or those who are holding the space, particularly in our North American context where I've worked a lot, there's a sense that self-care can be selfish or that, you know, taking that moment for themselves versus giving that, that energy, that, you know, that offering to their students, to their patients, you know, to clients that can be uh, given like preferential treatment over, say, something that is quote unquote self-care. Um, but we see in the literature, and I've seen over and over again, just through my own experience, you know, who we are, right? We sometimes say in education, the hidden curriculum of the classroom is who the teacher is. Um, and I sometimes play this, uh, I ask this question when I give a workshop, like, remember a favorite teacher, and people will remember a teacher they loved from so many years ago. And I ask them why, and you hear, well, they were so fun, they took extra time for me, you know, they, they gave creative projects. You never hear like, I love my grade four teacher because they taught me multiplication. Um, so who the person is really matters. And so to your question of like a barrier I see is I think we sometimes forget in these spaces, like how important that is. And so I see that some of that kind of the challenge sometimes of bringing it in is like, you know, the, the teachers want it as a tool for their students to help their students, which is awesome. But you know, where do we begin? Like, is it more important to like give a student a tool or to like support the teacher to like flourish and thrive? Because like who they are will give those students, you know, that listening, that ability. And so it's it's this interesting back and forth. And I think people are becoming more open as we get more of a sense of how much attrition there is, um, you know, for educators, for our clinicians, that's that's driving some interest in this. But I think one of the big challenges is, yes, yeah, students are often more open in the sense that they're just like, I'm in my class and like we're doing something else. Um, but for our teachers, for our clinicians, you know, for those who hold the space to actually ask them to find space, take time, take space for something like this um, can be more challenging. And yet in all the spaces I've been in, um, when we are able to make it invitational, not an extra burden that's on top of the work they're doing, but we can kind of make it something that's, you know, integrative and a daily practice, um, that there's been so much like relief and openness and excitement about getting to kind of be more human uh, and allowing, allowing that space to say like, how are we all kicking each other on the carpet? You know, as adults, right? It can be, you know, the way we're dumping projects on each other or, you know, not listening well or making assumptions about one another. And so getting to explore that, um, I've seen a lot of, of openness to that. Even when people were like, oh, that, that teacher is never going to be into this. They're very difficult. And then it actually turns out that they're uh, maybe quite open and happy to say, you know, what's hard in our, in our working space right now and how can we care for it? So yeah, it's definitely finding the beginner's mind and, and how to bring people in can be a challenge, but also one that I, I haven't seen as a lasting challenge really in any space, um, that there's been a lot of actually excitement and interest uh, when we do it in a, in a very safe and invitational way. That's so wonderful to hear. And given how important our clinicians and teachers are, nowadays you know given the pandemic and all the challenges we're facing um a bit more about who the participant is it must be so challenging to sort of design the workshops um and I was just wondering do you have certain activities that are specific for the type of populations you know do activities change when they're you know 
kids and you do the mountain versus the jelly thing which I would also love to join in on by the way um but yeah is it different depending on the profession or the participant yeah and you know another great question is something um you know if you look to the literature uh there if we look at also how mindfulness is measured or how some of these programs are measured you know there's some some challenges and limitations around that because we're dealing with this kind of messy context of human experience which is why I love to bring in the qualitative lens um but I'll say if you look at the literature, you know, across particularly educational spaces, you see a lot of variation in terms of types of programming in clinical settings. Um, we have, you know, the our kind of gold standard research programs like MBSR, MBCT, um, Marze is an adaptation. We see a lot of kind of eight week programs that are often about three hours a week with, you know, daily uh, homework sessions. But then if you dig into the literature and education, you'll find, you know, this broad range of programming, um, you know, to drop some names if people want to look them up. We have like the Dot B program in the UK, uh, Mindful Schools, Mind Up, Mindfulness Without Borders. Um, and each of these are tailored, you know, to elementary settings, high school settings, and are looking at that adaptation and translation. And But then even within those programs, we see a wide variation again of, you know, how long is a session? How long is a practice within that session? What goes on in between? Um, and I would say this really speaks to the need, as I said, to, to have a settings approach to really, you know, consider who is it you're working with and how can you meet them where they are? And I found that to be, you know, the most effective approach is we often, again, have this conceptualization of mindfulness. I think there's actually a misconceptualization. You know, mindfulness is sitting alone on a cushion with our eyes closed for 20 minutes. And again, I want to say, you know, the research shows this changes structure and function of the brain. So great. Um, but if, yeah, we're different ages, different abilities to focus for a certain amount of time, maybe differently abled within our bodies. You know, I've done adaptations where I'm working with schools in a, in a classroom that had students with autism. And so we were, had a whole conversation like the, you know, ringing a bell or even having eyes closed was like not something that felt safe for them to engage with. And so we talked about a body scan and the students came up with me, came up with an idea together with me. We kind of co-created it that they wanted to check in with the different parts of their body. They wanted to try this practice of like sending some compassion to their bodies. Um, so how could they do that? And so we decided to do it standing up and we would touch each part and say hello to it together and breathe three times and then touch our cheeks and do that and then touch our shoulders. And so we did a whole body scan. It just, it looked and sounded totally different. Um, so I think, yeah, really thinking as a community, as we continue to bring these in and maybe we haven't touched on this, but you know, the, the concept of mindfulness or this type of wisdom of, of bringing awareness has roots in so many cultures around the world. And so there's also, there's so many different ways to do this. You know, I bring my lens and training uh, to my particular approach, but I think that's another piece is, you know, just finding these different wisdom traditions that we can draw upon and then seeing how is that safe for a particular space? What does that, you know, space want to do with it? Um, that's something, you know, I enjoy about the training I have and the background I have from Thich Nhat Hanh, Plum Village Buddhism. I sometimes say it's a bit of an open source, uh, you know, body of knowledge because, you know, from the beginning, you know, there hasn't been a kind of um, set of doctrines or rules. It's really this kind of looking at a way of looking. That's so wonderful. Thank you. I see you brought in the idea of wisdom. Do you see mindfulness as a sort of wisdom? How do you think it relates to the broad theme of our podcast on educating for wisdom? Yeah. Oh, I love this question. Maybe I'll throw it back to you for one second, since you have this wisdom lab, just to share with me a little bit about how you're conceptualizing wisdom so I can meet you in that space. I think we're already there, actually, because I've been conceptualizing wisdom as exactly this idea of human flourishing. So Carl Rogers has this idea, this concept of a fully functioning person, a fully flourishing person. And I think that's what we're going for. And actually, I think wisdom is just an honorific that you give to people who either seem to be living that way or some particular thing that they've done that might contribute to living that way. So, you know, um, that's sort of how I'm casting wisdom, very broadly. And it allows for, as you said, a lot of exploration of it, you know, in different contexts with different people at different ages or in different cultures. What does wisdom look like? What does it mean for them? Yeah, so that's what I think in that sense. It feels to me like mindfulness is maybe a tool that could contribute to, the, to that kind of uh, flourishing, the way you've been describing. 
thank you for that. Yeah, it seemed very congruent is what, what, what came up as you said that. Yeah, and I think when we look at mindfulness and kind of the, the etymology of, of that word, of the kind of, you know, some of the thousands of year old sutras that it draws upon, um, it's really trying to explore our kind of innate human capacities. Um, so a lot of what's written about, you know, if we want to say written about, you know, the oral tradition in the time of the Buddha or the traditions that wrote down in the sutras and this kind of this stream of knowledge that I draw upon in that sense um, likes to say, you know, we're not looking for something outside of ourselves. We're really, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a phrase, you are already what you want to become. Uh, and one of my participants in my study kind of reflected this. Uh, it was a physician, you know, longtime physician practicing mindfulness for the first time. And they said, it's kind of amazing. It's like a power that already existed in me that I just didn't know about. Um, and so that there's this real invitation in mindfulness to return to ourselves. Um, and this real, I think the ontology and epistemology of, of this practice, if we look at the both the traditional sutras and how they're being taught right now, is this idea, we have this idea of the, the storehouse and it's this kind of uh, way of conceptualizing ourselves, um, which is that inside of us, we have all these seeds, seeds of love, compassion, fear, anxiety, you know, all of these things. And depending on the environment we're in, we're what we water them. And that this kind of creates the landscape of our minds, but that all of us, all humans, we have this potential, you know, to water these seeds of, of love, of understanding. Um, and we also have this potential to water our seeds of fear and anxiety. And Thai actually gave, oh, we call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai for short. It means teacher. Thich Nhat Hanh's long every time. He gave a, an incredible talk a few days um, after 9-11 where he said, you know, the people who flew those planes, they had the seeds of, of fear, you know, maybe of, of hatred and anger. But I also know that they had the seeds of love and understanding and compassion in them as humans. And we have to really look as a society to see, you know, what was watered and why and, and what role do all of us play in that? Um, and even now, as we're looking at, you know, issues of systemic racism, of, you know, climate justice, of, you know, in one of the courses I teach at U of T, Buddhist perspectives on current social issues. So this is very live for us this year. You know, we were really looking, I think, from a wisdom perspective, like how do we draw upon this body of knowledge that proposes, you um, this potential, this human potential for flourishment and thriving, and how do we apply that to ourselves and our wider societies in these, you know, in the face of all of these major challenges, what does that tell us? Um, and so here, you know, on the, this one, we're, we're just looking at this, maybe this piece of this broader societal question, how do we create educational spaces where people can flourish and thrive? But I think what's really inspiring about that is I think education, like if we look at it, you know, elementary school, high school, wherever piece of education you're looking at, that I think educational spaces represent this incredible place where we have this potential to cultivate wisdom, to cultivate this human potential, especially, you know, in, in elementary school and high school at like a neurobiological developmental phase that's so crucial for this wave of humans that are about to become our society. Um, so when we look at these big, you know, big challenges we're facing as a global human family, they can feel overwhelming. And I think something that makes me hopeful is having conversations about like, what, what might we bring into like our educational spaces um, to draw, like you said, to draw upon on wisdom. How are we humans? Like, what is the act of being human? And how does that help us all flourish as a society? And I think education is, you know, one of those really critical nodes for that conversation. I love the idea of watering certain seeds and choosing which ones to water. And that education is basically like bringing people into a greenhouse or something. It's like you've controlled an environment in which you actually really can set the conditions that will allow certain things to be nourished and other things to be brought under control. And it has this idea of being much more forward-looking. It's not just about accumulating a certain skill set uh, that you can then use to get a job, but it's sort of thinking ahead to what sort of life you'll be living when you leave here, when you get out of school. You know, job skills are one thing, but the rest of these types of skills that you nourish, I think, are a very important part of that too. So that's a really great image. Yeah. And thank you for reflecting it back like that. That's the fun part about having a conversation. I was like, oh, 
that greenhouse. I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach that next time I teach the storehouse to teachers. But it's a beautiful thing is to really consider, like, when we think about our educational environments, you know, how are they places where teachers and students can flourish and thrive? And there's that piece you added in, right, that they are this opportunity, you know, to really think about, like, what are we cultivating? Um, and that's, I, yeah, and not just for the job. I think you seem to be alluding to the difference between formative and a summative assessment. So it's like if you say, um, if you just say that you've got a 92 on mindfulness, um, that's where you are. But actually, even if that were true, it's not as useful as somebody, like you said, who can't concentrate and realizes that. That's actually already something that they can work towards, or maybe they can ask themselves on what conditions they can focus better. You know, those types of questions allow you to have a kind of rolling assessment. But they don't always sit very easily uh, with the school system where you've got to decide whether this person is going to get the next grade or not. It's an interesting question. It starts to touch on like, how do we measure mindfulness and well-being, which I think is, uh, you know, 10 more hours of, of podcasting and a lot of research. But, um, you know, it's a it's an interesting thing to measure because we have some interesting measures around burnout. There are you know interesting measures also around emotional intelligence that I think are are interesting to bring in. We have some measures for mindfulness. Um, I think one of the challenges that I've been discussing and I think, again, as a qualitative researcher, I love that data because we often can hear and see fairly immediately, like what is happening. You know, often when I go into a classroom, the teacher will be like, oh, that's the difficult kid. They're not going to be able to focus. Um, and well, what is a successful mindfulness practice? Is it sitting perfectly still and not moving? To me, a successful mindfulness practice is, has such a, a broad set of options because Often after we do a practice, the young student who was like falling off their chair the whole time and like couldn't keep their eyes closed, I asked like, how is that practice for you? And I'm very open. I've set up no right, no wrong. Like where I like to say mindfulness is an experiment. If you pour in all the chemicals and you get what you wanted, great. If you pour them in and it explodes, like also great. You have more data. That's my framing. And so I asked the students, what data did you collect? You know, the student I was told wouldn't succeed at mindfulness. They say something like, I realize my mind is so busy and I totally can't focus. And I think wow, what a successful moment of mindfulness. They've really become aware of something in themselves. And so when we talk about what is it we hope to see, you know, again, for me, it's often not uh, with mindfulness or, or how we've maybe been trained as we've just been talking, like what we think success is in an educational space, you know, getting that grade or that thing. And what else are we acquiring? What other skill sets are important? How are we measuring those? Um, so for me, what I always hope to see, you know, when I go into a classroom space is, were we able to learn, you know, do we collect some good data on ourselves? Do we have that data to move forward in a way that can inform, you know, how we're regulating ourselves, how we're regulating as a classroom? I, you know, I love the stories I'll have, you know, we'll do sometimes a parent night if I've been in a school for a bit. Um, and I love hearing from the parents, like my child was up managing me, you know, what does that mean? Oh, well, I was getting really stressed when I was cooking. And they said like, mom, we should stop and breathe. Um, and so there's all these little things. I don't know how you measure those on a scale always. And so I think also I mix methods, designs, when we think about how to try and kind of get a, a clear picture of what's happening when we bring these in are, are so important to get those, those stories that we can't always see on a scale. And also, you know, the scales are really important. Um, and to think about what those are, like in healthcare, maybe looking at some of the patient satisfaction scales, because, you know, are we actually gonna be able to measure if someone became more mindful or will we see how it impacted their relationships to others? So it's a, a complex question. Um, and one that I think the field, you know, as a young field is still really exploring. Um, but yeah, what I what I hope to see, you know, more and more is, is kind of what Michelle brought up, which is, what does it mean to really think about our educational spaces, maybe from a, a broader a broader conceptualization, just like with mindfulness, we want it to move beyond just sitting with our eyes closed on a cushion. You know, our educational spaces, like, yes, we want to have certain competencies that we're reaching and, you know, maybe certain grades that are important for, you know, the way we set up our, our societal metrics around this, but what else is important in these spaces? And also, how do we give precedent to that. So it isn't just like the check off pizza party, right? If we just say like, well-being is something we do over lunchtime. Uh, are we actually saying as an institution that it matters? If we're not embedding it in the curriculum, if we're not really, you know, giving teachers or clinicians time and space to care for themselves, do we actually mean it when we say it matters? 
Um, and just going back to the, I guess, general structure of the workshops and, you know, how they are meant to help your students um, actualize their human potential and, you know, be their best selves. Um, is there a certain way that you'd hope to see those changes in participants, whether it's short term, long term, or even a few months after the workshop? Are you folks able to stay in touch? Yes, and I think time as a barrier is something that I hear a lot, um, you know, both in educational and healthcare spaces. So I'm glad we're talking about it because it's one that I like to kind of problematize. Um, and I'll say, you know, the my participants in my research study really at the other end, they gave me this great word. They said the perception that time is a barrier. And so that's what I like to problematize is if we have the concept or we think the rules of, of mindfulness practice or self-care mean adding something to our day, which for teachers, for clinicians is like, they don't have any more time. And so something I really love about, you know, the tradition I come from of, of engaged practice, um, you know, we like to think of it, and this is also in the literature for education, I like to think of mindfulness as a bit like mental fitness, uh, and just like physical fitness, you know, there's different ways to go to the gym, there are more formal ways, you might go for a specific class, that's at a specific time, you might, you know, go to the gym and do weightlifting for a specific time. And so that has a maybe a beginning and an end, you go somewhere and you add it to your day. And there's a lot of benefit to that. And you can really build, you know, your muscles and your health physically. And there's kind of more informal or integrated ways that you can be fit. You might decide, you know, you're going to walk to work and you're going to walk at a certain pace every day, and that's going to add to your physical fitness. And so I think the same thing for mindfulness, like how do we, how do we integrate it? We really want to look at both, you know, sometimes literature calls it formal, informal, but then that can sound like one is more important or useful than the other. So we've also been playing with this terminology. Um, but for the sake of this conversation, let's say formal is this more kind of dedicated practice and, and informal or integrated is this kind of on the go version. Um, and I think what I've seen in the trainings is often for our initial training, we want to do some of that more kind of dedicated formal because you're learning a new skill set. Um, so it's useful to have some structure around it, just like. Uh, you know, if you've ever been in an art class, when you first start drawing perspective, you actually draw a grid with a ruler and then you measure all the parts of the object you're drawing. It has to be really, really structured so you get the perspective right. But then you learn the skill set. You can draw it freehand. You don't have to do all of that. And so for me, I think a, a hopeful, encouraging thing for any anyone listening who wants to bring this into daily life is it doesn't always have to look that structured when we have a foundation of practice and what I've seen so much, especially working with like the teens that I worked with at, at Sick Kids Hospital. I love like once they have that foundation and we encourage them, like integrate it, play with it, you know, to focus your attention on your breath and give yourself that practice of putting down your worries and fears, coming home to your body, some of these kind of foundational practices of mindfulness, they do it in an integrated way. So like before an exam, they'll follow three breaths. Or like while they're like getting ready for their basketball game, um, you know, for for teachers, sometimes the suggestion is like from your car into the building, you know, if, if you park your car and you walk into your school, can you just for that do integrated what we call like mindful walking, which is taking the basic practices you would do during sitting meditation and apply it while you're walking. And so that's time they already have every day. They're going to walk from where they park their car into the school. This might be a pre-pandemic thing, but let's just, you know, for, for this conversation say, that's a moment they already have. Or like for me, every day I brush my teeth. I can brush my teeth. And while I'm brushing my teeth, I can be like writing emails in my head, but I can't be writing those emails right then. So like, here's a moment in time where I could apply some of the foundational practices of mindfulness, say with focused attention, coming back to my breathing. And I don't have to find more time. I can do it while I brush my teeth and I can like really notice how I'm brushing my teeth or for that teacher, they can really notice how they're walking and it gives them that break from like constantly inundating our minds with our worries and fears. They don't already have to be at their job while they're outside the building. And yet, you know, our minds constantly do this. So, you know, to address time as a barrier and how we bring this into educational spaces, I think we really want to think about you know, maybe what is some minimal training to create a foundation, to create the basic skill sets so we know how to work out? And then what's all the permission and ways we can play with it 
so that it's not extra time, so that it integrates with activities you know we would already be doing. And I think I heard, I hear over and over from the schools I'm in, uh, from the physicians in my study, from clinicians I work with, like this is what makes it possible. They're like, oh, mindfulness can be on demand. I don't have to <laughs> go to the retreat center. <laughs> Um, that's amazing. And you have mentioned a few activities like, you know, um, body scanning and counting your breath and so on. So um, from all of these techniques, um, is there a particular technique that really resonates with you, that really fits you, um, or a particular theory or construct behind one of these techniques that really resonates with you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, coming back to that idea of like, physical fitness and thinking about our mental fitness. I think so much of it is is just like that. So for me, you know, I have like a sense like, oh, I, I want to take care of my body. And sometimes I have more capacity for that in my life or less, depending on what I'm doing. When I was finishing writing my dissertation, didn't get as much exercise as I meant to, both physically and mentally. And then I had to be like, oh, that's actually affecting my sleep. And oh, I need, I need to be the person not thinking I don't have time. Um, this is to say, though, I think the biggest thing, if we think about like, mental fitness is to choose your own adventure in the way that makes sense for your life right then. So for me, my mindfulness practice, there's some consistent things that I do. I really like practicing in the morning and evening when I can, um, but it adapts to my life, just like my physical fitness. There are times where the thing that feels most accessible and motivational is like going to a group class, you know, going to a dance class. Sometimes I really, really love running. Um, and sometimes they do a whole bunch of things. And so I think in our lives, just like we would with physical fitness, you know, we choose how often can you go to the gym or is it that you're in a time where you just need to be doing like a fast walk when you can, um, or maybe you've pulled a specific muscle and you need some, like you're doing some physical therapy to like care for something. You know, I've gone through times where I was going through a really big challenge. Um, and so something like a meta practice, a compassion-based practice was something I needed more of in that moment because I was needing a certain kind of care and healing for myself. Uh, there are times, you know, so I think having like that foundation of what practicing mindfulness is to me um, is also like, how do we equip people with a number of tools so they can choose their own adventure? You know, just like I, you know, if you're going to have someone be physically fit and I like dancing and if the only way to exercise is dancing, you're never going to do it. You want to be able to figure it out. Like some people like an app, some people like going to retreats, some people like a combination. And so I think just, again, broadening this con conceptualization of mindfulness is so important for healthcare spaces because, um, you know, the teens I work with, some of them liked doing a body scan and for those you know, who are in chronic pain, maybe that wasn't always safe for their bodies, but they love doing mindful walking. And that was the thing. So yeah, being able to know the different options and then choose your own adventure. Um, so when you ask me what I do, it's like, oh, I do so many different things, kind of depending on what I'm in the mood for. That is so fair. And um, just to ask you, I guess, since you brought it up, um, the Mars A program, which we already briefly spoke about, um, I'd love to hear a bit more about it. I think it's especially relevant to our current time, even though it was conducted back in 2019, to our current time where, you know, the pandemic, most of us are in self-isolation. We're sometimes feeling rather lonely. Um, so for folks who would like to know a bit more about the program, uh, could you please tell a bit about it, about the online version of it uh, and what you hope to achieve with it? You know, did online delivery support or perhaps hinder um, achieving uh, these results. Yeah, and we, so the Mars A program um, is an adaptation of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Uh, Zindel Siegel, actually, one of the authors of that program is at um, our Mississauga campus at U of T. So we have this wonderful kind of collection of research across the campus. Um, Mars A was an adaptation of that for adolescents uh, done by a pediatrician on the West Coast, uh, Dr. Zunvo, who actually started a center uh, for mindfulness at BC Children's Hospital. And he had this idea of bringing together kind of MBCT, adapting it for adolescents, and actually has a training with Thich Nhat Hanh. So it's, it's kind of an infusion of uh, some of the MBCT work with some of the engaged mindfulness practice work. So I, I really enjoyed teaching it for that reason. Um, and we did a study actually looking at its in-person and online delivery before the pandemic, which was really informative as we came into the pandemic. And what was interesting, what we found about in that study, because we were wondering, like, you know, when we run the Mars A program in person um, at the hospital for sick children with adolescents, there's always this incredible sense of like community and openness and vulnerability. And we thought like, 
will that happen on Zoom? <laughs> um, and what was so interesting was we really, the feedback from participants when we analyzed the data, we saw so much of the same qualities that people really felt seen and valued, were really able to cultivate and apply a lot of these kind of foundational techniques that we've talked about. You know, when they noticed their anxiety coming up because they had like blood work or they were going to go in and hear about, you know, their diagnosis, that they were integrating it, right? Really applying it in those kind of ways of like, walking down the hall to the clinic or, you know, thinking about it when people were talking behind each other's backs, how could they listen more mindfully to their, their friends in high school? Um, so all that was still happening. You know, the big difference we found, and this is just, you know, something to acknowledge was there was a little bit less of the kind of social connection. So the informal, like we shared numbers and now we're going to go get a tea because like you're online. And so to speak to, and also honor that, that isolation that we can feel to say this really positive thing, like we can, you know, build mindfulness competencies and skill sets and have a sense of connection online, which is awesome. And also to acknowledge this, this piece that was different. Another piece though that was kind of enhanced was actually focus on their dedicated practices. Um, so when we're in isolation, maybe we have this extra motivation to do a type of practice or a type of focus we wouldn't. So that was the one little area um, of difference that we saw. And that, you know, also for ourselves, we can honor that as we kind of navigate this space that we are also missing some of those, those kind of informal moments to say like, hey, what's up? Um, so that was an interesting thing in that study. It was this like incredibly hopeful, awesome thing that we can deliver this online and to acknowledge that that little piece that was a bit different. Well, that's great. Maybe it's a natural segue to talk about wake up schools and your role as coordinator in that. It seems like it might be very different. But at the same time, I guess you're also not able to go to all those schools in person. So what was that like being coordinator? And what are these wake up schools? And what sort of things were you able to do as a coordinator for them? Yeah, so I, in between my master's and PhD, spent a year as the International Program Coordinator for Wake Up Schools, which is an initiative that was started by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, and the Plum Village community. And they were really interested. He wrote this, he writes calligraphy and poetry as well as being a scholar and teacher. And he wrote this calligraphy that said, happy teachers will change the world. And his intention for that was really looking, at, as we've already discussed, you know, what creates and transmits wisdom? How do we create environments? And just seeing how much the teacher is at the heart of that in some ways, in so many spaces, uh, in, in so many societies. And so this deep intention um, was kind of brought on after this calligraphy, this insight from Thai, happy teachers will change the world. And so Wake Up Schools, the initiative started wanting to look at how we might coming back to our kind of watering seeds metaphor, how we might cultivate and water seeds first in teachers and then in whole classroom environments um, where we could create spaces that we're looking at, at flourishment, at thriving, at, at bringing into education some of that stuff that's kind of in the hidden curriculum versus you know, the, the expected curriculum. Um, and so that initiative, it's funny, it's called Wake Up Schools, but it was not actually to start schools, but was to bring into schools um, first again with training with teachers and then also going into some schools to do these kind of foundational trainings and looking at how that could change the classroom environment. So I did work with them um, in India, Bhutan, Germany, France, the UK, the US and Canada. We were in elementary, high school and post-secondary schools. Um, and what we did as a community would be to go in and run kind of whole school workshops. So uh, the one I spoke about a bit earlier when we were in uh, New Delhi, India, was we were invited into a school and we did like two day training for the teachers over their weekend and then trainings in the classrooms with the students during the week and then an evening training with parents. Um, and the idea of that was to kind of offer these basic competencies in the practice, as I said, giving them this kind of choose your own adventure across what mindfulness could be, and then allowing the school to consider how they kind of brought that into their ecosystem. And so Wake Up Schools has continued to do this work, offering actual trainings in schools, but then also creating uh, what we call the Wake Up Schools International Teacher Sangha. Mm -hmm. uh, sangha is this word for community. And so uh, it just actually one ran last week, which is building a list of teachers who are practicing all around the world who are have this uh, intention to bring this into their practice as teachers and creating a support network for them. And so multiple times a year, we'll come together, there'll be a talk uh, on the practice, a short training, and then the opportunity for these teachers to all meet with each other online. It's actually almost easier. We can have breakout rooms on Zoom. Uh, 
uh, to support one another and to look and discuss their practice. Um, so that was that was a bit of what that work was. And, and to say it was just fascinating, again, to be in different cultural spaces and really touch this kind of this connection of being part of the human family, this drive in us to connect, to be heard, but also that on a mountaintop in Bhutan, I could be sitting around with 17 year olds or like on like in an alleyway in New York City behind a school, sitting with 17 year olds, having what we call like Dharma sharing. So just like this sharing from the heart and in both places talking about like talking behind each other's backs, a little bit of bullying, like who they liked, how that was making them feel nervous and just these like, real conversations around the challenges we face as humans um, and that they're I think coming back to that idea of collective wisdom that there's there's some collective experience of wisdom in that and of course it's socioeconomic all these different things you know shift it um, with the 17 year olds in Bhutan the 17 year old boys were really happy to be like I've been having trouble with my compassion recently because like compassion is part of their cultural lexicon and was like a cool thing to talk about and that wasn't the word you know the boys in New York wanted to say they'd be like this is weird it's like it's like awkward for me and then we'd like get into more what that meant so of course we have different things but this real I think the the gift of working with Thai's community and wake up schools international was to really touch in all these spaces, these kind of basic human like potentials and needs. Um, and that's what I think is lovely about thinking about wisdom and thriving is again, not to say we're all the same, not to say that each of our, our contexts doesn't have an impact on who we are and how we communicate. Um, but also that there's like this incredible thing that all of us you know, maybe don't want to be bullied and want the person who we have a crush on to like us. And like that can cause us anxiety or we want to get good grades and that can cause us anxiety. And and then we can explore that together. So that was, I think, one of my big uh, takeaways from from working with Wake Up Schools. And um, since you brought up wisdom, uh, I guess circling back to that, um, was teaching for wisdom ever something that you consciously thought of? when you were, you know, conducting your workshops, meeting with 17 year olds and, you know, so on, having those um, relations, was it ever something that you consciously thought of or was it something that just happened naturally and organically? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm enjoying uh, bringing in this, this idea of wisdom is not, you know, one of the terminologies that's so prevalent in, in the field that I'm in. Um, so as that's why I had kind of asked the definition, I was like, oh yeah, that's very congruent. Because um, I think, you know, if we look at like the etymology or, or the teachings that my lens draws upon, we have something called, it translates roughly as the four noble truths, which I, I like to kind of translate again into kind of like, kind of like the truths of, of being human and they're, you know, very traditional in the mindfulness community, but I think it, it is very congruent with this idea of collective wisdom or, or this kind of human experience. And they just say, you know, there is suffering. We all have it. Uh, there is a way, a pathway that we take towards suffering. So we often do things to walk down the path to our suffering. And also that there's this human potential to touch happiness or this quality of, of aliveness and care in all of us. And there's ways that we can walk towards that. And so these are kind of these collective human truths at the heart of the practices I come from. And I think, you know, that that connects into what I'm hearing when we talk about this word wisdom. So I hadn't had that terminology in my head, but it it makes a lot of sense to me as we discuss it. And um, based on what we've heard so far, it sounds like your participants must have come from all walks of life. Uh, and had countless reasons for uh, wanting to do mindfulness. And often people turn to mindfulness to alleviate anxiety or regulate emotions. That was definitely the case for myself. Um, but, you know, sometimes students encounter more severe traumas, um, whether it's instances of abuse or feelings of despair. Uh, and you kind of touched on this as well. But um, how do you think these students would respond to or benefit from mindfulness training? Yeah, and, and this is such an interesting question also for a field that doesn't have like a regulatory body at the moment. And so, you know, you're looking at like, what does it mean to bring these into different spaces? And I think something wonderful that we are seeing, you know, as a field is really great programs that have come up for specific populations. So I've mentioned, you know, both MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which specifically has been um created for relapse and depression and is actually now publicly funded in the UK as an intervention for those experiencing relapse and depression. And so I think, you know, as a field, something we want to be mindful of, uh, maybe even careful of, um, is there can be this concept that mindfulness is like this, like 
silver bullet or fix all. In fact, it gets like an eye roll sometimes in healthcare now. People are like, stop telling us all to be mindful. One thing can't solve everything. And I'm like, for sure, like there's nothing in healthcare that we say does everything 100%. You know, even like if we look at like the efficacy of like, you know, a vaccine, we're going like, let's, you know, look at what that is. And so I think first off, we want to be careful not to make a claim that it works for everything. And I think for me, most people I've met are not making that claim, but there can be like this perception of that claim. Um, and so I think that can, you know, it's something we want to be aware of. And so I think if we're going like, hey, what can mindfulness do? I mean, my experience is because it's speaking to what it means to be human. Um, I would hypothesize that it would work in some way for most humans. And I think that's where the confusion can be because it is this very broad, you know, like if we look at what the evidence shows mindfulness can do, I have this like long laundry list and people are like, that's a lot of things to claim your field helps with. Um, I would say the reason we see that just going back to the physical fitness metaphor is like, we know if our bodies are physically fit, there's a cascade of physiological benefits. And so the same thing, if we're doing something maybe that makes our mind fit, there's a cascade of cognitive benefits. So when we look at like better memory, you know, better working memory, better recall for an exam, you know, more communicative with your colleagues, like why is it all these things? They're all related to cognition. So I think there's incredible potential for mindfulness. And when we think about someone who has maybe experienced particular trauma or is going through, like I said, when we work with patients with chronic pain, we want to consider like what is the intervention or program that is like appropriate and safe for this population. And I think that really applies to most fields. You know, I don't think that that is something that applies, you know, if we're looking at behavioral change. Um, or how we care for ourselves as humans. I think it's very odd sometimes in this field, people are like, don't say it solves everything, or like, we, the same thing won't work for everybody. And I'm like, yes, of course. Um, that's, not, that's not a concern. I don't think that's a claim we, we want to make or should make about anything. Um, so I think your question is wonderful. And I think there's already many answers in the literature and in the field, which is, yeah, really consider your population, what is safe for them. And then go out. And again, like I said, there's this collection of mindfulness-based interventions, MBIs, that have pr primarily made for clinical populations. So that might be the route if you're looking for that kind of an intervention. In education, again, like I mentioned, there are some a whole bunch of different programs like MindUp.B um, that have been developed for you know, educational spaces. And so I think as a field, we're kind of growing in what we can offer and continuing to figure out how we research it well, how we translate it well. And that's a bit of the work um, that I was doing in my PhD. I actually uh, wrote and designed the program that I studied based on Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings because uh, those had not been brought into the literature in the same way. And I wanted to kind of bring in another lens there. So I think it's it's an exciting time because we're, we're figuring it out. And that also means it's a time to be, yeah, discerning and, and careful and, and make sure we take care of, of different populations in the way that's safe. Uh, tying teaching mindfulness in with teaching for wisdom uh what would you say to folks who think that wisdom or just human flourishing in general is more of an experiential thing so something that just happens in life by yourself um or is you know something that you learn through religion and things like that uh, rather than something that can be taught in a classroom yeah, such an interesting question. And I think, you know, you've just named some other domains or areas that may also um, support or inform, you know, our wisdom, our cultivation of well-being. Um, so we have, you know, just our lived experience. You know, I have dear friends who have never practiced mindfulness, and yet we can have a tea in my backyard. And because of who they are and what they've experienced in their life, we're really sharing many things along the same lines in terms of our intentions for ourselves and other beings that we interact with. Um, we also, you know, we know our many of our religions in the world have contemplative practice embedded in them, uh, values and insights around community. And so that can be informative. Um, so all these spaces, you know, maybe places that we do this. And then we also have this other interest, you know, as from my lens of being a researcher, like we said at the beginning, I love to nerd out on, you know, the kind of neuroscience side and the mindfulness practice side. And I think the interesting thing to me and one of my goals um, in my research and in, in my PhD that I just completed, I would say is building the bridges between science and Dharma. If Dharma is like these kind of wisdom traditions and teaching, because I see so much congruency between like mindfulness practice. If you look at the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, what we have written down from the Buddha, like these spaces, and these are the lenses I have, so you could name yours, but 
they were interested in researching themselves, being like, what does it mean to be human and how do we cultivate this? And so for me, if we look at also some of the kind of current evidence base for mindfulness or emotional intelligence, we can see that the structure and functions of our brains, right, where attention goes, neurofiring flows and connection grows is this kind of, you know, phrase we have. And it's really like explaining. And I always say like, none of the neuroscience should surprise you because like it's about your own brain. So actually it like should intrinsically make sense. It's like, if I spend a lot of time and energy doing something, I know how to do it better. Like, okay, that makes sense. And so then at the neurobiological level, we're saying that like you build neuro connections in your brain when you do something. And that makes sense because you're doing it better. That means you're having more connection there, right? Um, and so I think, you know, a kind of similar thing about, um, mindfulness like why do we need to train for this because like we know when we train something we get better at it um and that's and that's what the evidence base shows right we can see you know emotional intelligence uh that this kind of undergirds a lot of our ability um to really skillfully do our jobs we say like in leadership training courses like yeah you need the technical skills but what keeps you in the room what moves you into leadership position is emotional intelligence skills and that those are trainable um, so it isn't necessarily just something that happens because we want it to. Uh, I sometimes like to say, and so this ties right into your question, you know, why would you tell a child in grade run to stop crying if you haven't taught them to understand like the roots of their difficulty to take care of it, to hold it and to process it? Like, why should they be able to stop crying? Right. And, and but yet we do say that. And on the flip side, you wouldn't turn to the child in grade one and go like, go be a better lawyer right now. Like, you know, they can't do that. They haven't trained to be a lawyer. So, and I, I think it's, it was just as, just as silly a thing to turn to that same child and say like, stop crying. Um, and yet we do that. We think for some reason as humans that we should just know. And I can tell you having practiced mindfulness and trained in this you know tradition of, of Plum Village and Thich Nhat Hanh for like over 20 years, I still have challenges in like doing the thing. Like I know I should do the thing. I know I should breathe. And yet like something upsets me and I just want to like, ramble on about it for so many hours and like you know Tigna Han would say like we can cause violence to ourselves we replay and replay our difficulty and our challenge and we tell ourselves we weren't good enough and like we do this so we we need some training this business of being human is complicated and hard um and so you know my pitch to people is like why do we need this in our education systems is really you know everything we know about the brain we know that we can build these capacities and everything we know about burnout, attrition, uh, despair, we know that we need skill sets. We want to be strong enough. We want our muscles to be strong enough to, to get us through our big challenges. And so why not do that in the place where we spend most of our formative lives, right, in our educational systems? Thank you. You basically just answered my final question as well, which was, what would you say to someone who is on the fence? about mindfulness training, given that it has this association with developing wisdom, human flourishing, and so on. Yeah, you know, and it's, I think, you know, and people can be on that fence for many reasons, right? You know, are you on the fence because uh, you have your own tradition and you feel like this maybe isn't congruent with it? And then like, well, you want to look into that and see, is there something you draw upon that works for you over here? Might this integrate well with it? Um, you might be on the fence because you don't have time, as we talked about. So as we talked earlier, I'd like to problematize that, be like, that's totally fine, be on that fence, but like, come check it out and see how it integrates. Um, you know, I think for me, just coming back to that physical fitness metaphor, like if we somehow collectively, you know, at least accept that like burnout, exhaustion, fatigue, anxiety is something we are maybe collectively experiencing as a human family or something we're individually experiencing, um, then why wouldn't we want to check something out that maybe can support us? And, you know, just like going to the gym, you may not like all the classes on offer or all the machines that you can use, but you might find one that you like. So for me, I think the invitation, hopefully with mindfulness practice um, or with wisdom teachings is to not say, do it this one right way. It's to say like humans for thousands of years have been researching and exploring like how to care for ourselves, how to increase our mental fitness so that we can more skillfully meet the challenges of the world. Um, because, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a magical button that stops us from having challenges. Uh, but John Kevinson, the founder of MBSR, would say we cannot stop the waves, but we can learn to surf them. 
Um, so there are different ways, different styles of surfing. Um, but this is one that we see from the evidence base, from thousands of years of human thought, uh, can really equip us uh, to strengthen ourselves so we can meet our challenges more skillfully. And when we meet our challenges more skillfully, like we can be, at least in my experience and what I've seen in the data and research studies I've been part of, it gives us this opportunity to like be our best selves, maybe be our kindest selves, our most compassionate selves, our most engaged selves, our most motivated selves. When we're in business, we're talking about like optimization for teams, psychological safety, like all these things happen. You know, when we have internal stability, it naturally goes out to the communities that we're part of. And so for teachers, for clinicians who can be so concerned with like the space they're creating or what they're delivering to their students, to their, to their patients, their clients, it can feel funny to say, like, start with yourself. Um, but that's what we see is like who we are is who we are everywhere we go, right? We say sometimes like separate your personal and professional, which like for like, you know, there's codes of ethics. You can't like go into your classroom and be like, dear students here was like my really bad weekend. Like that's not appropriate. But if you've had a really challenging weekend and you don't have tools to care for yourself, who are you when you teach that student? Are you short with them? Do you yell at them? Like what do they receive? Um, so not to put more pressure on our teachers and educators and wonderful clinicians who are listening to this, it's not to put more pressure. The burden of burnout should not be held by the individual. It should be a interaction between the individual and the system. But what we want to say is through wisdom traditions, you know, in my lens, through the practice of mindfulness, this hopeful thing that without finding more time, there are things we can do to equip ourselves so that we can be the person we want to be more often for ourselves for our families and for the communities we're part of. So that's really the, maybe the note we want to wrap up on is like this really hopeful thing. You know, we all, we all need to human and humaning is hard. Um, and happily uh, we have ways of training ourselves um, that we can bring to ourselves, you know, to our very young students uh, that can make a difference in who we get to be in the world. So I think that's the, maybe that's the congruent goal between what I've been working on and what you're doing at your lab. Amazing. We all do need to human. Ellie, thank you so, so much again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's so much fun to explore this with you.